This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Bruce DeBrule. Dr. DeBrule is an associate professor at California Polytechnic State University, where his teaching focuses on cybersecurity and privacy education. His educational goal is to develop opportunities for diverse students to get hands-on experience with security and privacy. Dr. DeBrule's research interests include wireless security, cyber physical security, location privacy, and automotive security. In 2020, he was nominated for the Outstanding Faculty Scholarship Award for the California State University System. And he co-leads the Transforming Access to Cybersecurity in California Strategic Research Initiative, awarded by Cal Poly. The initiative aims to address the fundamental problems of access to cybersecurity training and to cybersecurity services by both developing holistic cybersecurity training and education and by developing ways to provide cybersecurity in underserved communities. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Deb. Bruce, we've gotten to know each other just a little bit through the Combined Strategic Research Initiative here at Cal Poly with rough parameters of that research initiative around revolutionizing or rethinking the tech workforce. I talk a lot about the ethical technology side of things broadly, but I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about how you see cybersecurity education and training and why you think it needs a revolution. Yeah, cybersecurity education is a growing field. There's been a handful of very prominent schools that have been doing it for a long time, but a lot of schools around the country have just started getting into cybersecurity education. So there's a lot of room for growth. I think it's still an open question of what should actually be inside the cybersecurity education and how to prevent cybersecurity education from becoming a siloed topic where you have some people that are doing cybersecurity from a purely technical standpoint, some from a legal standpoint, some from an ethical standpoint, and leaving these as separate pursuits. I guess maybe I should back up and ask a question for those uh, listening who are not cybersecurity students or experts, but maybe should be, or maybe would want to be if they did know. What is cybersecurity? Yeah, so cybersecurity broadly is protecting various resources, assets, people from the potential of attack from outside. And this can take a lot of different flavors, but commonly we have defined cybersecurity using what's known as the CIA triad, which says that you're focused on confidentiality. Are you able to keep the data you're interested in so only the people that should see it can see it? Integrity, are you able to have data or systems that don't do random things or change in unexpected ways? And lastly, availability. Can you actually get to your data? Can you actually get to your system when you need to? And this can happen in anywhere from a traditional website all the way to autonomous vehicles and farming equipment that have a cloud component, which is getting more common and things like that. Is cybersecurity a new field that has risen out of kind of permutation of our devices and connected online environment? Or is it an older thing? What's the kind of history of cybersecurity? When we talk about the history of cybersecurity, we often look going back all the way to cryptography, which we often point to uh, Julius Caesar 
as actually an early adopter. We're using what we now call the Caesar cipher. And then we look at the evolution all the way to today with modern computing. I think that we look at security and hiding information, and that's gone digital. But before that happened in other means. So I don't think it's necessarily a new thing. However, the amount of digital technology that we're dealing with on a daily basis has grown so rapidly in the last 30, 40 years that I think it's became more prominent for sure. And by more prominent, do you mean more prominent as a need or more prominent as a problem to be solved or more prominent in the sense that we just have more devices? I guess from that, I mean that the number of online points that you connect to or the number of online accounts that you have, maybe is a better way to say that, has gone up incredibly. So when we talk about cybersecurity, your identity and information doesn't only need to be protected on maybe one email. It needs to be protected on four different email accounts, plus five different social media accounts, plus your bank plus 20 different services at school, plus a whole host of other things. So the number of places that stuff can go wrong has just gone bigger and bigger. And then you take the amount of data that's being stored if you have a smartphone, for example, continuously being generated from that smartphone. So how do you train someone, a student at Cal Poly, say, to work in cybersecurity? What do they need to know or understand or be informed about? Yeah, I think that's kind of a multi-pronged question. And I think at Cal Poly, we've tried to address that in different audiences. So we've addressed this all the way from a general education course, Introduction to Computer Security for Everybody, where we try to get people to think about their own digital footprint, their own way they interact with things online, and some best practices, as well as introduce them to things that could go wrong in their future field. For example, if somebody's going to go into agriculture, they might not need to have a full working knowledge of the ins and outs of technology related to cybersecurity, but they should at least have some knowledge that if their tractor is going to connect to a 4G network, there's a potential vulnerability that could exist so they can work with somebody that is more versed in the field. The next prong on that is in a computer science or computer engineering department. We actually, the computer science department is now requiring the students to take a course in either intro to security, privacy engineering, or crypto engineering starting next catalog cycle. Uh, so this will at least give them a flavor of how to think adversarial, how to look at systems and think about what could the bad guy do. And then we're also uh, starting a new privacy and security concentration in the CS department at Cal Poly. And in this last one is when a student really gets a deep dive into security. And in this deep dive in security, the student's going to generally take a six or seven four unit courses in security. So they're really going to get a deep dive into the topics. So for your average Cal Poly computer science student who might be toying with the idea of taking that first cybersecurity oriented class, what's your case for why a student graduating from Polytechnic University, for example, ought to be interested in cybersecurity? So for a general student in computer science, the case that I often make is you want to understand enough about cybersecurity so you can avoid making the mistake that's going to get your startup or your company 
in the news for the wrong reasons. What are the wrong reasons? For a large data breach, for example, or for a large vulnerability being discovered in your system. So the student actually knowing at least a fundamental uh, basic level of what could go wrong in the system can be really helpful so they can be a more informed developer in their job after college. You know, I wanted to pick your brain about some of the research initiatives uh, and the curricular initiatives that you're working on at Cal Poly. You're involved in a multi-university partnership to create computing curriculum designed for non-computer science majors across a diverse range of academic partnership institutions in order to really increase their exposure to computing, particularly among students who are not in the major, and to better prepare these students for professional careers in fields requiring a certain level of computing. And in that sense, I think one of the aims or the impulses behind this is to diversify the population of students enrolled in computer science courses. What's the larger problem that this project is trying to solve? Why should non-computer science people care about their computing skills? Yeah, so the first question there is what's the larger problem we're trying to solve? A lot of computer science education takes a coding-first approach to teaching computing. So you're going to, you know, CS101 is going to be how do you code. What we're trying to do is to flip that around to try to get people introduced to the larger, bigger picture topics of how to think computationally and break down problems that would then allow for the computers to solve those problems. This is how we're trying to organize the two-quarter course. The other question, though, is almost the more interesting one of why care. And the big thing we're trying to do is to show people that computing is important in broad fields. So whatever field you go into, if you're in literature, for example, if you know how to do basic computer manipulation, you might be able to answer really interesting questions about how people use language much, much quicker than manually going through books and looking for words. If you're in bio, there's a lot of work in bioinformatics that have been done in the last couple decades that has been getting more and more popular as an approach. If you're in almost any major, there's some amount of computing that's being used in your field right now. And given how broadly applicable automation and computing is, I think it's going to be more and more important for people to learn how to do some at least rudimentary computing. The other thing I was going to say is the number of computers in the average person's life is increasing. So if you think about the obvious laptop and smartphone, but then you expand that and a lot of people have smartwatches or other body area network devices, as we refer to them kind of more technically. Smart home devices. So you have a water monitoring system, voice automation system, or a smart toaster is on the market right now for some bizarre reason. Uh, It's also having people be able to understand how these devices work what type of information, at least at a high level, they're collecting about them, and how that might change or affect their life, I think is another important thing. So people can make decisions about how much computing they want in their life. Yeah, I mean, this idea of digital literacy, I think, broadly speaking, is really important. But before we move on to that, which is something else that I want to talk about, I do want to ask you to maybe pick up a little bit more on diversifying the population of students, which is one of your impulses, as I said, I think, behind this project and this partnership. 
I guess, you know, this makes me think of so many things, one of which is deeply personal. When I was a kid, I remember being actually really interested at the time when I was a kid, dinosaurs ruled the world and the computer games were things like Lemmings and you know, Stri Mission Striker. And I think that one of the notable things about these video games was that they were mostly narratively. In other words, what they meant to appeal toward was a kind of male perspective. And what happened with me is, yeah, I watched my kind of male cousins move toward computing, kind of drawn in these games, which were marketed and narratively aligned with their perspective. And uh, by the time I got to my first coding class at university, the classes, even the introductory ones, were so complex already in what they were asking us to do for people who really did not have any information or knowledge or any previous experience, which in my day was very gendered. And at that point, a lot of us opted out because the pitch was already above our eyes. Is this larger picture form of learning kind of aimed at addressing any of the kind of diversity issues that are around computer science majors and computer science courses? Oh, absolutely. So that's definitely one of the impetuses here is to try to get a multiple entry points into computing. So people that are traditionally under uh, represented and underserved by the computing disciplines can actually come into the computing discipline. I think one of the other initiatives we're doing actually almost might be a better fit for that question in that one of the things that we're currently working on is trying to figure out how we can offer the supplemental authorization for computer science education through Cal Poly. And what we're hoping to do there is increase the number of qualified computer educators, not only for AP computer science, which is really important, but can we get elementary teachers ready to teach computer science to elementary students and teach it in such a way where it isn't the primarily male-focused teaching computer science. So we really need to go back all the way to that first video game, as you were saying, to say, how can we increase diversity in computing? I think that's also not only across a gender line, but I think we also see that across the urban-rural line, where a lot of rural communities do not have access to computing, where urban communities often do. And then you have a poor and rich line, where rich communities in urban communities have a lot of access and poor communities in urban areas have not a lot of access. Yeah, I mean, the other issue with the large picture move that you're looking to institute in kind of curriculum mode as an entry point is that I think that, you know, if you are a person of color or if you are a woman in computer science, um, oftentimes you're interested in a number of issues that aren't kind of, so to speak, neutralized in a kind of coding class. I love the idea of, for example, a large picture curriculum that starts off with, you know, coding for the environment or coding for diversity or, or coding in a context of thinking about racial justice. I love that kind of idea that brings people in and allows them, I think, to see the, the stakes of cybersecurity or whatever the specific topic is with regard to something that they already care about. Absolutely. And that's actually something that was done before I started here is the faculty introduced what's known as a CS0 course or a contextualized introduction to computer science is a fancy way to say that. 
where you really start the curriculum instead of the coding first class of start the curriculum with here is computational art. And we're going to do some really nice projects in computational art and see what you can do with computing. Now let's get into the nuts and bolts. Or similarly, there's uh, CS0 courses in music. There's CS0 courses in app development and trying to get a kind of bigger picture and then get into the kind of finer grained details. And while we're talking about the part of the project focused on attempting to diversify the population of students enrolled in computer science courses, I wanted to ask a kind of follow-up question about the impact of that in the industry as well as the kind of social good I think that we're talking about here. Obviously, there is a moral and a social good that I think many of us take as self-evident in diversification, particularly in this technological arena. Is it as simple as having a moral and socially good ends? Or is there a value, an ethic, or an efficacy that you see in the dimension of the project? That's the first part of the question. And then the second part of the question is, what's the outcome for cybersecurity culture and cybersecurity projects if we refocus on diversifying the population of what I would call the next generation of technologists who are currently enrolling in computer science courses. Yeah, so I think there is the inherent moral and social good there. Uh, however, I think there's also some efficacy and important cultural norms that will come out of a diverse body influencing our technologies and how they're being developed. So we can take privacy, for example, and there's inherent cultural and societal norms to them. So if we look at how I, as a white male, might perceive what's important to keep private and what's okay to share, that might be very different than how a black woman might see what's important to keep private and what's important to share. That might be very different than a white male that was born and raised in Germany, for example. And we could continue to look at how different intersections of identity influences what you want to share. And this all plays into what, what we're going to do when we make privacy-related decisions in developing technology. The other issue that we have come into in the kind of recently and we're seeing more and more is that when you have a field that's been long dominated by white and Asian males, not to say there isn't some diversity, but it's an issue in computing. I think we've kind of largely acknowledged that. We've run into some really practical issues. If you're making an automatic sync that detects your skin and you mostly test it with white and Asian people, that means that it detects light skin very well. That means that when a dark skin person goes and tries to put their hands under the sink, it might not turn on. And this is something that actually happened. And it's wrong when it happens with the sink not turning on, but nobody died at least. What happens if an autonomous vehicle is trained with mostly white and Asian people and it detects light skin, but not dark skin. That's a much worse scenario. So we really need a diverse workforce involved here who can kind of point out the different use cases and different detection needs. I've talked about that issue specifically on a number of different iterations of this podcast, a number of different episodes where, you know, I also mentioned that the technology of photography is also complicit in this. Photography and uh, photographic technologies have been enlisted in autonomous vehicles as the mechanism by which the technology recognizes the presence of something in front of it. And the technology of photography is also trained to capture white skin. That's actually a historical 
reality where Kodak actually had a model name was Shirley. She is the prototype on which all of their colorings have henceforth been based. And this is a kind of very deep rooted technology that you're right. If you don't have people who have that perspective and are equipped to identify it as an issue, then we're going to have the perpetuation of these technologies in all sorts of really catastrophic ways as they become embedded in future technologies. Yeah. And besides that, I I think there's also some cultural norms that in computing, there's been a very defensive and aggressive culture in many ways that has largely come from uh, what what often is shorthanded as the programmer culture. And I think this can specifically be true in computer security, unfortunately, because it often is a field where it's focused on almost aggressive actions and trying to break into somebody else's system or to look at vulnerabilities in somewhere somebody else's system. So I think that adding diversity will hopefully influence better cultural norms in computing. Maybe it would be a better way to say that. In reading your work and talking to your students who, by the way, revere you across the board, absolutely revere you, I see that beyond the projects that you're working on that we've just talked about here, a lot of the way that you think about cybersecurity and education is oriented around an interdisciplinary approach that reaches non-computer science majors and as seen from your class, practical computer security for everyone. What drives an interdisciplinary approach for you? And why, in your view, is it important to think in interdisciplinary ways? I think there's a lot to that question. At the most basic level, introducing a broad audience to cybersecurity can help avoid some of the most common vulnerabilities. So what happens in a lot of systems when they're attacked isn't that somebody finds this really cool esoteric way that the processor isn't working right, that they're able to get into the system. A lot of what happens for an attack is I'm going to start calling people and eventually I'm going to start asking, I'm from the Password Inspection Bureau. We need to make sure your passwords are up to date. Can I have your password into the system? And as crazy as that might sound to a lot of listeners, that works an alarming number of times. So what we see is that the more people that understand basic of cybersecurity, we can hopefully start avoiding some of those issues, some of the social engineering attacks, for example, which is what that type of attack is known as. Furthermore, when we look at cybersecurity, we really have to approach it from a multidiscipline way. We need to actually look at not only what we can do, but should we do it? So it's really important to evolve ethicists and people from a liberal studies perspective. We need to understand what we can do legally, and that can be a really tricky question with cybersecurity. We need to understand the psychological acceptability of different interventions or defenses we might be trying to put in. We need to understand the technology, which is where I started my work in cybersecurity. Uh, And we also need to understand things like physical security. It doesn't matter if we have the best digital security ever if we forget to lock the server room so somebody can walk in and spill a cup of water on our servers. So there's kind of a lot of different perspectives that really can lead to a better, more informed decision-making process for somebody that needs to decide how they're going to use their resources. You started off with that word, should we do this? Or that phrase, should we do this? The word should is an ethical word. The question of ought we or should we is an ethical question. Security an ethical issue with ethical stakes? And if so, how? What are the ethical principles behind it or the ethical questions that cybersecurity addresses? So I think that cybersecurity absolutely 
needs to be informed by ethics. And that's why we do require our students to take a course in ethics of technology. And I really encourage students to consider how ethics are going to play into their decision making. Eventually, you have to decide what are you going to spend your resources on to protect or how are you going to protect things or what are you going to protect? And there's limited resources, as with anything, right? You have limited number of hours of the day, you have limited developers, and they have to make a decision about how they're spending their time. And you can choose to protect all data the same, you can choose to protect data for certain people, you can choose to approach things in different ways. So we really need to look at should we in a lot of cases. One of the places this often comes up in our teaching is in the privacy engineering course. And in this course, we actually require students to participate in a formal debate about the ethics of a privacy-related question. Because there is so much cultural, societal norms around privacy, there's a lot of uncertainty of what should and should not be shared, for example. So what's an example of one of these debates? One that my wife actually brought up yesterday for a societal homework in her genetics course was whether there should be a national registry of genomic data, for example, where people can contribute their genomic data either freely or compulsory to this registry, which would lead to a lot of opportunities for research in how different populations or different genomic information contribute to different diseases. And you could do some really cool stuff there. However, that same data could have some really horrible impacts if you start using it for racial profiling at the genetic level, or if you start using it to inform other type of eugenics types applications. Okay, another ethical question. I hear a term tossed around quite a bit, uh, especially from my cybersecurity students who take my ethical technology class. It's a term white hat hacker. Can you explain what it means to do ethical hacking or what is a white hat hacker? So that largely deals with separating the people that are working on hacking into systems, using hacking in this case to mean breaking into finding vulnerabilities in a system, not the kind of newer form of hacking where you're just putting things together and designing a system. So people that are hacking or breaking into a system largely see themselves in one of three camps. The first camp is the white hat hackers. And these people are going to look at a system that they have permission to test in defined boundaries of how they can test the system. And based on that, they're going to look for vulnerabilities. They're not going to share the vulnerabilities with anybody that isn't supposed to know about the vulnerabilities. They're not going to attack a system at random. They're going to do things in a completely legal way through direct employment, through contract employment, or in general permission. So there's some companies that will say, you can attack our sites using any of these techniques. Let us know if you find something and we'll write you a check. So these are a legitimate legal form of employment and that there's a lot of opportunities in. But there's a second group out there that we often call gray hat hackers. And the gray hat hackers are going to attack a system that they may or may not have permission to attack. They're gonna find data or find weaknesses in the system and then they're going to ask the company for some amount of money to tell them how to fix it. Or they're going to basically blackmail a company, for lack of better terms. And this is gray hat because they're not selling people's personal information to attack at a larger level. They're not selling credit card numbers. They're not doing anything that is directly damaging a large number of people. But it's still not legal. The third group that we talk about is the black hat hackers. 
And this is the group of people that are trying to break into systems to find sensitive information, to cause mayhem, to attack systems. And this can range from trying to get social security numbers and credit card numbers to market in the black market, all the way to trying to deface a website for some political or social means. All right. All right. Well, I'm going to have to put on my cynic gray hat. I don't know what color my cynic hat is, but we'll, we'll pretend that it's gray here and ask a question about the ethics of the ethical hacker or the white hat hacker, because it seems to me that what you're describing here are people who have been trained to find vulnerabilities in a system and therefore, at least in the context of white hat hackers, identify needed protection for those vulnerabilities for places like businesses. I don't know, and and perhaps this is a worthwhile debate, I don't know that that's necessarily ethical. I mean, the way that at least I think many of us would think of ethical is in terms of the moral or the social good. Protecting businesses from liabilities does not seem to me to be intrinsically ethical. Can you speak to this or are we struggling over the definition of ethics here? So, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be businesses. So I think there's kind of a couple of pieces of what you said there. So this could also be protecting large groups of people that are shopping online at these businesses. So, right, the the view there doesn't necessarily have to be you're trying to optimize profit for an e-commerce site. You could also view that as trying to protect the people that are using the e-commerce site to buy whatever they need for their healthcare, right? So you could look at it that way. So that I think the, you know, the protection of the business, you could also do things like protect a nonprofit. There's nothing to say that this is only done in a business world. And actually there's some efforts to try to figure out how to train and prepare people to work in local government and nonprofit in cybersecurity to test those sites. There was a couple of years ago where a lot of local municipalities were actually falling prey to a cybersecurity vulnerability called WannaCry, which is a ransomware attack, which is a fancy way to say it goes on your computer, it takes all your files and makes it so you can't read those files unless you pay somebody a certain amount of Bitcoin. The other thing is training somebody to find these vulnerabilities. It's better for them to find those vulnerabilities than a black hat hacker who is going to cause some amount of chaos or to cause a loss of personal privacy or protection for people. No, I mean, your point is well taken. I think that when I conceive of the import of what it would mean to be an ethical hacker or white hat hacker, I start to think, well, how are we training the next generation of technologists to think ethically about the jobs that they're about to take up in the tech industry? Over the summer, we actually conducted a report that identified a growing market in the job market for ethical technologists. This is what we're calling a new profession here. And we actually struggled over whether or not we would identify the job listing for an ethical hacker as an ethical job. To be sure, what you pointed out is absolutely true. You want to find and protect these vulnerabilities in a wide array of circumstances. But do you have to have ethical training or be ethically knowledgeable in order to do these jobs? Yeah, and that's a great question. Do you have to have ethical training to do these jobs? And I think the short answer is maybe not. Should you have ethical training to do these jobs? And I think the short answer is absolutely. I think at some point it is really important, whether it's people working in cybersecurity or technologists in general, to look at what are they doing and why are they doing it? 
are you working at a company that you believe in the product or the purpose that they're moving forward is something that's actually helping the greater good? Or are you working in a field where you're kind of making money and that's your main focus? Uh, and I think that training people to look at critically at what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, as well as what they're doing in a bigger picture, is a really important thing to do. I think looking at cybersecurity in particular, you often get into gray areas of whether you should or should not do something and having an ethical and underpinning is really important there as well as having good legal counsel at the company you're working so i think both a ethical underpinning as well as a legal background to be able to inform decisions of from both of those perspectives is really important so how do you or how would you structure uh, cybersecurity education in a way that teaches your students who as i said i'm proposing to be the next generation of technologists to pursue a good or ethical hacking role instead of a bad or unethical hack yeah, that's a hard question because how we approach getting people to focus on taking good ethical jobs, I think is encouraging them to look at problems from multiple perspectives, as well as encouraging explicit ethical communications or ethical thought through the coursework. And not just in one spot, don't get me wrong, I really love that our students take a fantastic ethics and technology course in the philosophy department. I really love that a lot of our students love to take courses in other departments in CLA or College of Liberal Arts and other colleges where they get to think about these problems. However, I think the direct embedding of ethical and societal implications of your technology into technology courses is an essential part of training the next generation of students to consider these problems. And I think at least considering the problems is the starting spot to how you're going to be ethical. Because if you don't take the time to look at the problem and go, should I be doing this? You're not going to make a informed decision. You know, I have one last question on this white hacker uh, name here, because as a literary scholar, I'm actually quite interested in that term, white hat hacker, because the genealogy of the term, which recalls the cowboy who wears a white hat, that's the, typically the good cowboy, cowboy who wears the black hat is typically threatening the justice order. Um, it brings us back to what I would call in literary terms, a classic genre, that cowboy narrative, which of course belongs to the narrative form of the Western. We are, of course, out on the West Coast, the site where the Western as a genre rises up. And Silicon Valley has been described as the wild, wild west, right? With some of that principle of the genre of the wild, wild west deeply embedded, I think, in technological culture. I mean, there's a way in which the vigilante cowboy of the Western actually can takes on a modern iteration of or transforms into the lone startup genius who sees himself as the Western cowboy who we find so often in tech culture. And I can think of many examples of how the principles of the Western reappear in Silicon Valley in our modern West Coast iteration. There's an interesting way that the idea of the ethical hacker is also tied to this notion of the kind of lone cowboy standing up for what's right against those who threaten the social order, especially when more formal codes of law fail to do that job of protection is so frequently happens in both the Western and in contemporary tech security scenarios. Does cybersecurity fit into or forge itself in the image of the white hat hacker from the Western? If so, what's your thoughts on how it borrows from or fashions itself in the conventions of form? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot there. I think that the idea that you're upholding law in a place where the law might have failed or the law hasn't been developed yet is kind of where a lot of this comes in, in that a lot of what we're doing as white hat hackers is trying to defend a system where there's very little well-defined international law and limited well-defined national law. I'm not a legal scholar. Please do not consider my legal opinions to mean anything. Go talk to a lawyer if you have any questions on this. Always try to give that caveat. However, I think that that kind of feeling is often there where it's up to you to protect your system because there is no legal means to protect your system or at least no good legal means to protect your system. So I definitely think that narrative falls out there. I think that there's kind of what often gets described as a white knight or white hat syndrome, where you're kind of have this heroic view of yourself where you're trying to defend the system and keep everybody safe inside the digital world. So that's definitely something that arises. And I think that often arises particularly when we start dealing with cybersecurity around vulnerable populations. So one of the so kind of a subfield of cybersecurity is finding illegal content that's hosted online. So one example of that would be stopping illegal trade in narcotics, for example, or human trafficking online. And there's definitely a lot of need and work being done in that area right now. I want to pivot toward asking some questions about the protection that cybersecurity seeks to provide, which is, I think, at least in one dimension, the protection of privacy. We just talked about uh, the term white hat hacker from, in literary terms, what we would call the genre of the Western. And I'm reminded of my conversation with Dave Eggers, the author of, among many other things, The Circle, which we read in my ethical technology class. I had Dave Eggers on the show, and we talked about the stakes of privacy on the internet and in the digital age. And a couple of things that he mentioned have really stayed with me. But one of the things he mentioned was that, and I remember this quote very clearly, a people surveilled is not free. Is there a link between privacy and freedom in your view? Absolutely. I think that a complete lack of privacy or a lack of perception of privacy, and I think there's some nuance there, can lead to a lot of self-censorship and not acting out in a way that you would want to. And I think this can be good in some cases. You know, if you're walking down the street, sometimes it's good to self-censor and not say something that you probably shouldn't say in a crowd. However, a continuous self-censoring of all your thoughts can lead to really dystopian outcomes, as Dave Eggers writes about. How do you think that the definition of privacy has changed with the creation of the internet and the internet of things? And for those who don't know the term, the internet of things refers to devices from smart toasters to smart watches to smart fitness collars, dogs, something that I've been looking into lately. I want to see how much activity my dog gets every day. These objects that are now circumambient in our lives and that are connected together, that talk to each other, that transmit data, that's, that's what the internet of things references or has the definition of privacy change and if so how yeah so i think internet of things is kind of an interesting revolution but when we talk about kind of technology changing privacy we actually will come you know kind of in a circle in our conversation go back to kodak so back in 1890s or the 1880s we see an emergency of a focus on kind of individual privacy and what that means, not driven by the internet, obviously, in the 1880s, but by the Kodak camera. There's a famous law review article written by uh, Warren and Brandeis that looked at this and the right to privacy and how that was influenced by 
technology way back then. And particularly, Warren Brandeis was interested in how Kodak's big invention, quick developing film, would lead to the leaking of famous people's affairs, double meaning definitely intended there. Then came the internet in the 90s, which allowed for a large amount of information that doesn't go away to be continually stored. Instead of writing notes to a friends in high school, you're now posting it on social media. Instead of taking a picture that gets developed at a you know pharmacy and then putting that in an album or a drawer somewhere, you're putting it on Instagram for everybody in the world to see. The world's got a lot smaller because of this. Your privacy isn't so much your papers anymore, as was defined in the Fourth Amendment, but now it deals with a lot of online content and a lot of interaction with online content that people have medium to no understanding of in a lot of cases. So yeah, this has a lot of really interesting implications. So when we talk about how the internet has changed things, think about when somebody searches for a medical condition online before the internet, this would have been going to talk to a physician, asking them a question, and you would have had protections under a fiduciary relationship with that physician. Now you're going to search for that on Google or another search engine. And they're going to market that to advertisers. They're going to start showing you ads for that medical condition. So if you're at work and it's something you don't want people to know about, you might have people looking at your ads and seeing that as suspect. And then we get into another change. So I think the bigger change might not have been IoT, but the smartphone. So back in 2004, 2006, when we first see the iPhone released, people started carrying around smartphones. And now we have something like a 75% adoption rate in the US of smartphone devices. This device is with you all day. You're using it to get photos photos and videos of daily happening. These photos and videos can be used with automatic image recognition to classify who's with you and when. You have your GPS on all the time, most likely. This means that your location at most any time is known. The location of all your friends and other people that you come in contact with is also known. So you can get some really cool correlation for who you're spending time with. You have wake words for voice commands, so the device by default can always be on and waiting for you to talk. You use this to look up things related to your conversations. You use this device to buy things, if not a majority of things anymore. Use this device to call for car rides, order food, socialize, everything. So the amount of data being generated by this device has really changed how people are observed and inferences about people. IoT continues this trend, uh, increasing the number of sensors and the number of ways that people can share information and be surveilled, but it doesn't really rewrite the underlying idea of what the smartphone started. As you're talking, I am really thinking about the fact that in the context of the pandemic, when we are connected to one another exclusively most of the time through our devices, we're clearly more connected to the internet now than we've ever been before, with more people being able to work remotely. Our classes are online. We visit with friends over webcams more than ever before. I never did this before. Now I do it a couple of times a day. While the shift wasn't fully by choice, obviously, it was made due to the ongoing pandemic, it has changed our way of life entirely. And if we continue on this path, then I think it brings up even a more extensive set of queries and concerns than the ones you just talked about. So here's a practical question. What steps can or should we be taking to ensure that our connections and that this path that we're going down is made and created and traveled down ethically and securely? 
I agree that with the move to online everything over the last nine months, there's really no putting the genie back in the bottle. The amount of telecommuting is going to go up. The amount of time in online education is going to go up. The amount of time with online socializing is going to go up. And I think this A, has some good benefits. So you can think of if people telecommute 20% of the time, the emissions impact that's going to have. Or if people are able to catch up with people across the world, the social impact. So there's kind of two parts to the question you asked. The one is, how do we do it securely? And I think there are some standard practices people can take to do kind of secure computing online. Are you using good passwords? And are you using something like a password manager? Are you using two-factor authentication? You know, that annoying text message you have to put in the code from in all your services? That does a lot to keep you secure. Are you keeping your devices up to date? Are you only downloading software from legitimate sites or legitimate app stores? Things like that. So good practices at an individual level can really help increase secure practices. Ethically is a trickier question. I think even the access to high-speed internet is a challenge. Living in Slow County here, there's a non-trivial part of the population that just cannot get access to high-speed internet. If you look at the poor versus rich divide on access to high-speed internet, there's an issue. How are we going to deal with the access issues that people have? And how are we going to address those type of access issues to make this a level playing field for everybody that needs to get online? I think the ethical, kind of the psychological impacts of this I'm not qualified to speak about are really interesting and things we should be looking at. The developmental aspects of this for children are really interesting and we should be exploring again not qualified but uh, you know there's definitely some really interesting things there that we need to answer to make sure we're not harming ourselves or our future generations when we're making this decision so you talked a little bit about users and consumers what should we expect from the technological producers and businesses that are giving us these technological means of access what kinds of steps ought they to be taking to ensure that this new kind of perennially connected world is made in an ethical and secure image yeah unfortunately what we've seen a lot in technology is a lack of self-regulation. And I think that's something that's come up again and again, going all the way back to some of the decisions Microsoft was making and how they were bundling browsers, right, back into the late 90s. And with that, I think that there's unfortunately a mix of ethical considerations and legal considerations that need to be taken together. We can look, for example, at the California Consumer Privacy Act um, or the GDPR in Europe. And in either of those cases, that was government stepping in to provide regulation when companies were refusing to self-regulate and give people reasonable protections. So I think when we talk about how are we going to look at tech companies to do the right thing, it's going to be a balance of does a tech company do a right thing? So we choose to go to the one that's doing the right thing. And I think that's an important part of it. And I encourage companies that are, you know, using technology from companies that are trying to do the right thing. I think, you know, we can look at DuckDuckGo as an alternative to Google as a good example of that. Is that what you use? I use a mix of DuckDuckGo and Google depending on what I'm searching for and when. Largely focused on DuckDuckGo is great. I love it. But sometimes the searches need some help. So in those rare cases, I'll tend to go back over to Google. But my default browser uh, or default search engine on most of my browsers are uh, DuckDuckGo. 
Okay, speed round for our listeners. DuckDuckGo or Google? DuckDuckGo. Signal or WhatsApp? Neither. I do not have a smartphone that would support either of those services. Oh, okay. Wow. Third party answer. So flip phone or smartphone? I have a flip phone. Why? So I think that comes from a couple of perspectives. Largely self-regulation, I'll say, because I think that if I had a smartphone with all the internet connected, I would not necessarily live in the moment as much as I might want to. I already find it tempting to spend too much time on my laptop or iPad. So I think by having that separation is really good. And in general, I don't find that I miss having a smartphone 99% of the time. Kind of the one exception is if we're out somewhere that we're not really familiar with and are looking for food, that's like the one example of like, I wish I had a smartphone. Other than that, I don't really find much of a motivation to get a smartphone. Gmail or Hotmail? Uh, Gmail. One last one, Facebook or Instagram? I have neither of those. <laughs> Trick question. <laughs> neither of them. What are some of the most pressing cybersecurity issues that the world faces right now? What keeps you up at night? I don't know if it necessarily keeps me up at night, but what I might point out is the cybersecurity of critical infrastructure. So when we're dealing with cybersecurity of things like the power grid of power plants, nuclear power plants, when we're dealing with things like trains, planes, autonomous vehicles, GNSS, which is the satellite system that you get GPS from, or it's the general term for this, you know, what GPS is an example of. So whenever we talk about that critical infrastructure, I think we are really, in many ways, lacking understanding of how vulnerable they are or are not. It could go either way to uh, cybersecurity. And you could extend that out even a little further when we talk about the amount of automation that's going on in farms right now. We could really hit an interesting scenario where there's a large cyber attack against tractors. And if those tractors start plowing down crops prematurely, we're all of a sudden food insecure. So when we look at this type of critical infrastructure and how critical infrastructure is increasingly automated, I think that's definitely some of the more interesting cybersecurity challenges. There, not to say that there's not a bunch of cybersecurity challenges in the internet or the general internet and with your smartphone and with your IoT devices, but I think those are the ones that I find most pressing. I mean, if all of the cybersecurity issues, those were not even on my radar. So thank you for bringing them up. I, I'm hoping that I'll be kept up less at night for those who are listening to this at a date later than this podcast is released. Today is January 20th, hoping that for the next four years, I'm going to be sleeping better than I did for the past four years. Uh, but I did want to turn to ask a few questions about our contemporary political moment. Wait, did something happen today? Oh, no, no, regular old day, a day like any other day. I did want to turn to ask you a few questions about our contemporary political moment and some of the cybersecurity issues that have kept me up at night. Uh, in the past four years. For those who might not have been following, here's some background. A few weeks ago, federal security agencies confirmed that the massive hack of government and private computer systems that was uncovered mid-December was likely Russian in origin, which as of today, former President Trump refused to acknowledge as an attack of which Russia was the likely perpetrator. I don't think that they even began to address this until Quite recently, the hackers reportedly managed to break into multiple U.S. government agencies in what could be perhaps the largest hack of government systems ever. 
in which the systems that were breached in December and went on as breached were undetected by the administration. The breach includes malware inserted into third-party software that may have given the hackers access to various government systems for months. The FBI, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI, and the National Security Agency, NSA, are working together to investigate the breach. What do you make of this? And what are the implications for our political future and the stability of world governance? Yeah, I think that's a huge question. The terms of engagements in traditional warfare and espionage have been studied and understood for centuries. However, with cyber warfare, what is acceptable and isn't is a huge gray area. And we can see many examples where a country has outright attacked either another country or has attacked a company in another country. And there's not a real clear understanding of how does this work and what's the international implications of this. Again, not a legal expert. So there's a lot of questions there and a lot of gray areas there that I think we're still trying to figure out. And I think there's a lot of need for international treaty or conversation about how this is going to work and moving forward. Let's turn to the domestic. In the wake of the January 6th insurrection at the United States Capitol, we've seen a lot of people being connected to the event through cell phone data, social media posts, and various other technological means. And I think that it is in these moments that the cybersecurity flaws of sites like Parler were fully revealed. The event was terrifying for many, and I think that many of us, especially those of us who were repulsed by those involved in the violence of that day, view it as fortunate that there was so much evidence as uh, to those involved that were collected through technological means so that we can hold these people accountable. But even as we might celebrate the advantages of the technologies that provide such evidence toward the end we might consider just, should we be concerned about the precedent that this sets for public privacy? So I think that's a multi-tier question. The first part of that question is with data that people share publicly. And I would include that with data that people share on social media to all contacts. So when we talk about this type of public data sharing, people have shared that freely. And since people have shared that freely, you know, a lot of law enforcement can use that to track people down. And this has been something that's been going on for a number of years now. The second question is about data that people did not share freely or shared privately. Things like direct messages we could look at. Fortunately, we have a process already in place through the warrant system that allows discovery and requesting for a social media site to share this type of information. And there's a large legal precedence about when is and is not appropriate there. Again, not a legal scholar, but I think this sort of provides a pretty reasonable set of checks and balance. We also have things like collection of physical devices, which has a whole separate conversation, and then data obtained in unexpected ways. And one example I could point out for that is during the Arab Spring, there were some countries that operated a set of technologies that allowed them to intercept Facebook messages. And they used that to quell the uprising that was happening in Syria, I believe it was. So that's an example where the government overstepped, collected data that was thought to be sent privately and has major implication on the global stage, but definitely for the country of Syria and the challenges they've had. Are you concerned about the precedent that this sets for the privacy of the public? Mm, Not really. I think that the 
public need to take time to consider what they're sharing? And I think there's the question of kind of the reasonable expectation of privacy, which has always been the approach taken in the U.S., that if you share something on a social media site in a public fashion or to somebody that might share in a public fashion, then you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy there. So this might go to a bigger question, again, of digital literacy and how we're training people to make decisions about whether they should or should not be sharing things online. And I think the dirt that people are able to dig up in presidential elections in 15 years is going to be interesting. Let's put it that way. So we've touched on the global and the international scale and the domestic scale of our nation. Let's move to an even smaller scale, the very personal. It would be impossible, I think, to discuss cybersecurity and not connect it to some more prominent technologies that our listeners are probably carrying around in their pockets or using at this moment, our smartphones. Many of us carry with us daily what is essentially everything and anything someone would want to know about us. And as I think about this, I shudder at the idea of somebody finding out what I've been watching on YouTube or what I've been searching for on social media. And I absolutely panic at the thought of somebody seeing my browsing history. Oh my God, I die a little bit inside just thinking about what somebody would know or conclude about me based on what I Google from my phone. Not to raise alarm if there isn't a need, but but should we have so much trust in our devices, safety and privacy? So I think it really depends on your threat model, right? You're you're already sharing all that data with Google or Apple. So if your threat model is what can Google and Apple infer about you? Well, there's a concern there. If your threat model has to do with somebody that's close to you, a friend or a loved one looking at your device, then they're going to try to enter your passcode or maybe they're just going to flip through your photos. And there's reasonable precautions you can take to, you know, sort your photos or sort your web search history and things you do in different times. And you try to sort those out in a way that you're willing to share. If you're looking at a deeper question of, are you going to be susceptible from that data to being attacked by a national entity? Well, it's likely that you... China doesn't really care about your search history or Russia or your choice of government boogeyman X. However, you know, that's not what they're interested in. If you were Mr. Biden, who just became president of the U.S., they're more interested in that. So it really depends on who you are and what your threat model and risk levels and risk tolerances are. So this actually happened a few years ago where there was a number of famous people who had really bad voicemail recovery passwords. And because of that, people were able to hack their devices unethically. So in that example, it wasn't that they were doing anything different than the number of people listening to this podcast are doing. However, what was different is they were a high value target that people were interested in looking at. And the last thing I'll say is use basic precautions. Keep your device up to date. Use a password manager so you can have good passwords. Don't click on shady links or download shady software. Use an antivirus. You know, basic things that you can do to protect yourself. I want to end with one last question about the ethic of not only cybersecurity, but also of teaching and the ethic of teaching cybersecurity specifically. As an expert in cybersecurity, why did you want to pursue teaching? What did you hope to accomplish or impart to the next generation of technologists or humanists who take your courses who might hope to go into the cybersecurity workforce? I think the idea of training and preparing the future generation has a lot of appeal 
I also think the idea of being able to design curriculum and design novel research that I get to choose of my own volition and kind of get to drive as I'm interested had a lot of appeal. So I really like the independence and uh, task that I'm doing on a daily basis here. And that's kind of what led me to this. I think working on the products of somebody else's choice day in and day out sounds kind of boring, but that's my personal preference. And I think it really depends on what your interests are. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you so much for having me.